Healthcare is undergoing tremendous changes. Among them is the rise in consumerism, patients taking on increasing responsibility in selecting plans, providers, and treatment options, which will require the next generation of leaders to think and adapt in new ways. Welcome to Advancing Health, a podcast brought to you by the American Hospital Association. I'm Tom Hedderly, senior writer at AHA and your podcast host. On this latest edition of Advancing Health, the AHA's new podcast channel, you'll hear a March 9th discussion featuring hospital and health system leaders, including AHA board chairman Brian Granulati. The event was sponsored by AHA's The Value Initiative and Dell Medical School at the University of Texas at Austin and hosted in conjunction with the South by Southwest Festival. And now we go to Austin. Um, So let's get started with the discussion. Um, I'll kick things off by introducing our panel. Um, Their bios are quite extensive and impressive, so I'm just going to give you the Cliff Notes versions. Um, I'll start with John Hopper, who's directly to my left. He serves as president and CEO of Grady Health System in Atlanta, Georgia. Grady is a safety net healthcare system and it is a primary level, it is a primary level one trauma center and burn center for the Atlanta metropolitan area. John's career actually began in Texas at Methodist Health System in Dallas, where he served in various leadership roles, including executive vice president for corporate services and business development. In addition, he also served as Chief Operating Officer of Parkland Health and Hospital System. He currently um, serves on AHA's Board of Trustees and serves as our Chair of our Committee on Health Strategy and Innovation. Next to John is Brian Granulati, who is President and CEO of Atlantic Health System, headquartered in Morristown, New Jersey. It is one of New Jersey's leading integrated healthcare delivery systems. Brian oversees an enormous operation, um, a 16,000 member workforce spread over 350 sites of care. Prior to this role, he served as CEO, president, and other senior positions with Johns Hopkins Medicine, Suburban Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland, and Wellspan Health in York, Pennsylvania, among other posts. Brian has also served as a member on many AHA committees and is currently on the AHA board and he serves as the chair of our AHA board this year. And last, um, someone who you may know well, um, Dr. Clay Johnson. Um, He is the inaugural dean of the Dell Medical School at the University of Texas in Austin. Um, Clay is also a neurologist specializing in stroke care and research. He was formerly at the University of California, San Francisco, where he served as Associate <coughs> Vice Chancellor of Research and Founding Director of the Center for Healthcare Value. So thank you all for being with us today. Um, we have great weather outside, but I'm thankful that you chose to be inside with us um, to talk with this group. Um, and so I'll just jump in. In the description for today's panel, Um, We told everyone we would be talking about how we can develop leaders for the future um, that embrace a patient-centric, value-focused approach to health and healthcare. So I'd like to start with some level setting. So um, Clay, we can start with you, but what do you believe it means to actually be patient-centered and value-focused? Sure, yeah. So can you hear me? Is the mic working? Yeah. Yeah, good. Um, So first of all, welcome. So uh, wonderful to have you all here. Um, uh, yeah, I realize it's Saturday, and it's a beautiful Saturday, so uh, 
but we'll, we'll hopefully make it, uh, this an interesting uh, uh, conversation. Um, so, uh, so patient-centered and, and value-oriented really, to me, mean the same thing. So it's really all about you know, what it is that we're here to do. So as a, as a provider, we're not here, really my job only exists to serve other people, people who are looking for health. Um, hopefully looking for health while they still have it, but often as a stroke doctor, that's not the case. And then it's my job to get them as, as well as they can. But if you think about how other industries work, uh, particularly other service industries, they really think about that person and how to deliver on the needs of that person as best they possibly can. And I don't think we do that in healthcare. In fact, I know we don't because I'm on the other end as a patient and as a parent of a patient in healthcare, and I know how dysfunctional our system is. You know, can you imagine if you every time you went, or you had a reservation at a at a restaurant, and every time you can expect a 40-minute wait? Well, you don't know that it'll be 40. It could be five minutes, and then you'll be late, or or it could be two-hour wait to see, uh, to you know, for your table to be ready, and then you have 12 minutes at your table um, uh, before it's turned over to the next uh, um, eating group. You have no information on the quality of the food. You don't even know how expensive that meal is going to be. So that's the system we've created for our, our patients. It doesn't make any sense at all, right? And if we think about what people need, they really they need to be cared for, right? They, they have specific goals for health. We often don't even know what they are, right? We don't ask them. And then they really don't want health care. Very few people want it. They might need it, and that's unfortunate, but they really want health. And they want, it to be, they want to be treated with respect, and they don't want their resources wasted. So that's really what it means to be patient-centered, is to really think about the needs of the person and address those needs. Not even the needs of a patient, because then you're already assuming they're sick. The needs of a person and how to address them as humanely as possible. That simple. Value is just a way to make it sound fancy. It's just saying, well, then how do you turn that into an equation? Well, you want to improve outcomes, health outcomes that matter to patients at the lowest price possible. And that's sort of that value equation that we talk about. Um, and that just comes from respecting them. They don't want you wasting their resources. And they want the best outcomes they can possibly have. Brian or John, do you have other thoughts to add? You know, I think uh, you did a, a nice job describing the, the current system. So, you know, one of the one of the questions is why do we put up with it? You know, why have we for so long allowed that to occur, and what's different now um, than before? And um, you know, I, I really think that part of the issue that we have in this country is we have designed a system that's based on how things are paid for. We haven't designed a system based on how patients stay healthy, because you're absolutely right. Nobody wants to use us. They would, they would love to have a, a, a being where um, it was all about health and not about illness. Um, but it's based on how we're paid. And if you were to just redo the system, you would never, ever design it this way. So as I think about what's happening now, and this is a commentary to all the young folks uh, that are joining us that want to be in healthcare, don't get scared of it. It's an opportunity now to work to do the right thing, to put our patients in the center of everything we do. And it's going to take 
the continued push of all of us uh, to do this. And it's going to take a different level of partnership. And it's unfortunate we joke about the insurance companies not being here. But the reality is all of us need to work on this together in order to, to, to make this work. Um, and and so, so we've all got to lean into this. And, and to me, that's what's exciting about this period of uncertainty or anxiety about the healthcare system. I think we're mobilizing to do something different. Yeah, just one, one comment. Um, my opinion is that um, we as an industry have been struggling for at least 25 years to determine how we truly move toward value-based care. Um, and I think the, the current push around value, and I like, I like the way the Clay, the, what Clay defined that, has really pushed the industry only because it's having an impact economically. Um, and it's something we should have been doing for a long time, and it has now caught up with us as an industry. But the way care is designed is not how the patients want it or want to receive it. And I think the combination of value and patient-centric come together when you start with asking the patient how they want care delivered, how they want to receive care, and you design care delivery to that. To Brian's point, we have become so locked into the payment model and what we get paid for that oftentimes how we get paid drives how we provide care but it's not necessarily how the patient wants to receive care. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anything else? Yeah, I mean, I think that the changing the payment model is absolutely required so that we all get in line and we're able to row in the same direction to, to produce it. I mean, that's the nice thing about the restaurant business is that you know, what they can charge relates to the quality of the food, the number of people who come in, relates to the, the length of the wait. Um, we share information, everybody can judge the quality of food. You know, all of those are things mm -hmm. that are missing in the, in the healthcare system. Yeah. So we know we need a new payment system and throughout um, the South By conference and in other conversations that all of us are having, whether it's us talking with hospitals or you working um, in your um, hospitals or industry, um, we know there's a lot of things that need to change in the health system. And some of the things we've heard is how we document care, how providers are interacting with each other, um, how pro providers are talking with patients, um, how we use technology to share data and how we use technology to interact with our patients, um, how we eliminate disparities and address care um, in a more holistic way. So we start with payment, but there are a lot of things that um, perhaps we need to change. So how do we go about training future leaders of healthcare um, and what skills do they need to sort of respond to all of this for the future? Well, maybe I should start on that. Mm -hmm. Sure, it whoever. Sounds like something we can <coughs> think about a lot, you know, starting a, a new med school. And that was one of the exciting things about starting a new med school. It's, it's really hard in an existing place to change the curriculum. And I know we, we were talking before about, about um, challenges of doing that. Um, there are just a, there are a lot of advocates for the status quo in anything, right? And that's especially true in curriculum. It's like, you know, each of the professors feels like they own that piece and it's always taught this way and it's a really important fact and the medical students all need to learn it. So it's just starting from scratch, we were able to ask the question, well, what, what are we really missing in the, in the health system? So I'm purposely not saying healthcare system, it's the health system. What are we missing? Why is it so dysfunctional today? What happened to my generation of physicians 
in terms of their ability to avoid um, the system that we have today, um, and where are they now in terms of um, in terms of leading as opposed to resisting changes that could improve that system. So, with that in mind, we you know it's not our job to train all physicians. We we need a lot, but there's a gap in terms of physician leadership and uh, physicians who really understand these concepts and can put them to work. So we started to think about well, what does that curriculum look like? So one is focusing on leadership. So we don't really talk about, I mean, I had nothing on that when I uh, went to med school. And it's a different kind of leadership. It's not the, you know, yes, the patient will be treated this way. Nurse, go get me the, no. That is not the, uh, the kind we're talking about. It's it, how do you empower teams? How do you how do you recognize that others have uh, skills that you do not and enable them to achieve more? It's that kind of leadership, um, which we actually select for, too, because you, you know, we weren't sure how much could we train and how much would we need to use that as a selection criteria for students. So I, I can talk more about that if you're interested. Um, but then, the, um, then how we want creative people, right? So if it's the, the creative folks, they go into architecture and whatever, I guess, creative financing mechanisms and all that, and then the non-creative folks all become physicians, well, we've got a problem. <laughs> um, so we've got to think about creativity, selecting for it, and again, training for it. Um, then we need to include things like systems engineering. We, they need to understand the economics and why economics are so important to doing the right thing, even though, it, and it's not because we care about dollars, it's because if we don't care about dollars, we can't care about patients. So you know, how does that work into it? It's human-centered design, which is kind of a, a core set of principles based around being patient-centered, right? How do you step back? How do you learn from people, integrate all those, all that information, and use that to create something better? Um, and then it's multidisciplinarity. So what, by that, I just mean that we have to think outside our silos. If you just look within healthcare and you live in healthcare, you just think that's the way healthcare needs to be delivered. And if you talk to people who live that life, that's what they'll tell you. This is the way it's always been done. This is the way it always will be done. This is the right way. When you start to cut across disciplines, you realize what's possible. It opens your mind up to what's possible. And so we want to encourage people to move outside of the typical silos and to find, you know, the, you know if you think about pre-med and then to getting to med school, it's incredibly, narrowing as you go to specialty, subspecialty. So then we give them time to actually, uh, uh, get, it's called an innovation and leadership year, and they, they focus on, on really broadening, work on projects that are um, important uh, uh, for health, that have a potential impact health, but then they, they, a lot of them get dual degrees. So a bunch of them get M MBAs is actually the most uh, common second degree, MPH is the is the second most common. And then some become engineers. Mm -hmm. Educational psychology is another choice. And we're adding other master's programs that are available to them. So that, again, is sort of mind-opening, but also those skill sets, integrating those skill sets into the physician workforce. Not every physician has to understand business and get an MBA. That would be crazy. Um, we want a bunch of them to not want to do that. <laughs> but, um, but we want a few to deeply understand those principles and to be able to bring them to the field. Um, Brian and John, I know that you are actually doing a lot to work on curriculum development and education in the current system. Um, you know, it's hard to start a new med school. Um, a lot, there's not a lot of opportunity for that around the country. So how do you do it outside of that? And Clay, if you have thoughts on that as well from your previous experiences. But 
Well, I work in a safety net institution that's a, quote, somewhat traditional charity type of hospital, um, and we are a closed medical staff, pure academic model. I think it's kind of interesting you ended up with three folks up here from academic environments. Um, but that is where lots of teaching and learning is supposed to be happening. And one of the things, one of the things I admire about what Clay's been able to do is he got to start from scratch. Um, but Brian and I inherited organizations steeped in history and tied with academic institutions that are in that more paternalistic, um, older care model. And so my challenge that I, I've really taken to heart is how do I work both with the medical staff and the, the academic structure at Emory University, who's our partner, along with the long-tenured employees within the walls of Grady who have been steeped in that more traditional, here's how you get care. And oftentimes, even in a safety net environment, it's, it also has included in the past, you're lucky to get what you're getting. And so how do we, how do we transfer from that <coughs> to raising a generation of leaders and converting experienced leaders in healthcare to think about innovation. What is innovation? How do you develop an innovative mindset? How do you become more questioning of status quo? And then also arming them with the tools um, to look at how to improve, you know, basic things like lean. Um, but also the leadership academies um, we, we have had to do a lot of work around developing leadership curriculum um, that deal with some of the non-soft, I mean some of the softer competencies around empathy and courage and innovation. Um, you know, I can, I can teach people financial acumen, I can teach people, you know, analytics, <coughs> but you don't necessarily inherit someone who is automatically empathetic and innovative. And so that's harder work to do, but it's essential for our industry and for us to create the care environments we're talking about. And a lot of it does start with uh, leadership and having um, <coughs> now been wearing Atlantic uh, for almost four years, I've gone through the whole transition that you go through in an organization or in an organization that you enter uh, the transitions and the leaders. And so part of it is how do you select leaders and, and what, do, what do I look for? in um, uh, the leaders in our organization, whether they're clinical leaders or um, administrative people. The first is, and in our environment right now, we really need to act in the now. We also have to prepare for the near, but we really need to create a vision for the far. And when you think about how we hire people, sometimes we just get the actors in the today, right? Those are the operators, and the people that are holding on to things. And then sometimes we jump and we just get visionaries. But we've got to make sure that we get folks that are comfortable um, operating in that environment. The second thing that we um, try to recruit and, and search for is having a passion about what we do. It is, an, and again, this is a commentary to the students, it is an absolute privilege to work in healthcare and be able to care for communities and care for people. I started as an EMT um, and I've never not worked in healthcare my entire, my entire career. It's just uh, an amazing uh, profession. So that passion of how we care for our communities while we're caring for our patients is the second thing that I look for in, in leadership. 
And the third thing, which is kind of the opposite of the way we have trained people, particularly uh, physicians, is we've got to learn how to give up control to get control. We're not used to playing in a team. I grew up playing soccer. And the key to soccer is you always have at least three options, right? You've got to be able to move the ball. It's not like football where somebody's running a play. It's you've got to have at least three options. And that's really how I look at soccer. Sometimes you have to bring the ball back to get it to go forward. And you have to develop partnerships and trust. And, and so if you can create a group of leaders in the organization that are comfortable with um, operating in different levels and, and giving up uh, control and creating partnerships, I think that that sets the tone in the organization. And then you create um, your educational programs, your hiring programs, your retraining programs to do that. Well, thanks. And building off of that, Clay, you mentioned um, your selection criteria for choosing um, entrance into Dell Medical School and other programs, I'm assuming, at Dell. Um, how does what Brian's looking for in a leader once they're through school and ready for a job compared to what you're looking for in new students yeah, as they yeah. start. So actually, it's a, it sounds like we use similar techniques in thinking about people, because that's, that's what we want, too, is people who can operate between those two levels. You know, on the one hand, when you have a patient in front of you, 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 know, you better gather all the facts and listen carefully and all that and, and figure out what the diagnosis is and make a good treatment plan. On the other hand, if you're satisfied with the system you're working in, then you're not actually doing a good job because the systems are incredibly broken. And if you're not aware of that, then you will fail if your goal is to make the patient healthy, not to get through an office visit. So, so we want both. And so in, in terms of criteria, we actually, uh, so we talk about you know, passion and creativity. Um, and so those are, uh, you know, we look for those, evidence of those. Um, and then this, this bit about leadership. So, and, and communication skills and all that. So we do some things that um, a couple other schools do. So one is we actually, we get over 5,000 applications. We have 50 slots. So it's impossible even for us to interview even a fraction of the applications that we get. So what we've done is we have a, a cell phone based interview that we can apply to a much larger number of students that we can invite here for an interview. And we've tested that, and in mm -hmm. fact, it predicts quite well how they do um, you know, their uh, communication skills when they're with us. So that's a, we use that as a screen. It allows us to open up to a different kind of group of students. We can downplay uh, grades and test scores. Then uh, when they come here, we do two things. We do, there are ones unusual. That's the, it's called a multi-mini interview. Short questions, kind of an ethical orientation, test how well they think on their feet and how sort of mature they are, um, and test their communication skills, how they, in a, in a challenging way, not a, you know, tell me about where you're from kind of thing. Why do you want to be a doctor? By the way, that, has, that doesn't do anything. That doesn't predict how good a doctor they're going to be at all. We've tested, or how well they'll do in medical school. We've done lots of tests on that kind of traditional interview, and it's worthless. Um, and then the last thing that we do that's unique is we put five students in a room and we give them a, product, a project to, a you know, problem to solve. And we have an observer who has a standardized approach for assessing how they approach that problem. And we're not looking for the student who gets it right. You know, I know the answer, it's this. Um, 
that student actually scores very poorly on our, <laughs> our test. We're looking for the, the, the one who's good, who listens, who gets all the voices in the room, who aggregates those viewpoints. Um, that's the person that we want. Those are the kinds of leaders that we need. So that's a, you know, that's a, a, a tool that has been in incredibly predict well predictive of, of how our, our students do here. Yeah. And John, anything to add? Um, I, I have learned of and used a couple of different talent assessment tools, value-based assessment tools. Um, um, in my prior employer, we, we would interview every single applicant um, who was interviewing for a position or a job utilizing that tool. And what we found was that we were, by doing that, we were able to bring people into the organization that were very aligned with the organization from a values perspective um, and, a, and a mission perspective. The outcome of that was over just about a two-year period, almost a 50% reduction in turnover because you're upfront getting that alignment. That's a nice thing, the turnover is a you know, reduction in turnover, but the alignment and belief and shared belief system is really great. Where I currently am, we have not yet started that, but are going to. Mm -hmm. um, and the question has come up there, do we utilize that same type of assessment with all existing employees as well? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and making sure that if we do that, that's not seen as threatening, mm -hmm. um, which it could be, but very much in line, the process of getting to the right person Great, well, we want to leave some time to take questions from all of you. Um, so if you have questions, um, we'll take them in a second. I just wanna do a quick commercial break um, for the value initiative. Um, the AHA started this initiative um, a year and a half ago now um, to offer thought leadership to the hospital field um, on the issue of affordability and value. And in our first year, we have developed a number of tools and resources for hospitals around the country to help them implement value-based strategies that would make movement on the value equation that Clay talked about. So that would improve outcomes, um, imp enhance the patient experience, and lower cost. Um, so you can check out some of those are on our table out in the hallway. Um, in addition to the actual physical resources, um, we have also done a number of educational programs around the country and led dialogues such as the one we're having today to talk about where we need to go on this value issue in the future. So again, it's so nice to see a mixed crowd in this audience of people who are coming from all across the healthcare um, field in different sectors and coming at this issue from different angles because um, we believe amplifying these types of conversations will help move us forward in the future. Um, so you can take a look at the table we have outside for more resources. Um, all our resources are also available on our website, which is easy to get to. It's aha.org backslash value initiative. Um, you do not need to be an AHA member to access these resources. Um, so check them out. Um, and. Let us know what we can do better as we are moving forward on this because the ideas and thoughts that we've had from these dialogues um, really are what are moving our work forward. So I, I want to end by thanking all of you, um, Clay, Brian, and John, for being with us and sharing your insight on how we can build this workforce for the future in healthcare. I also want to 
offer a huge thanks to Dell Medical School for partnering up with us on this event and for allowing us to visit your beautiful campus. And we hope it's the first of many collaborations that we have with you going forward. I'd also like to thank the entire team from Dell Medical School, um, including Verena and the AHA team that helped us put this event together. Last, I'd like to thank all of you for joining us this afternoon and the work that you're doing throughout the healthcare field to really make healthcare better for Americans across the country. Thanks for listening. For more information on the Value Initiative, visit aha.org backslash value-initiative. I'm Tom Hederly, and this has been Advancing Health, a podcast brought to you by the American Hospital Association.